The following audio is from a sermon series for the season of Advent entitled The Birth of the Peacemaker. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Luke chapter 2 verses 33 through 35 and John chapter 4 verses 1 through 42. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back, They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, What do you seek, or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, 
Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say, There are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap that for which you did not labor. Others have labored, and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, It is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let's pray for a Christmas miracle this morning, because that is a long text. And I don't have that much time, so we're going to need it. Uh, welcome to Sacred City. Uh, my name is Justin. I'm one of the pastors here. We are in a series that we're calling The Birth of the Peacemaker. It's uh, done my heart good to hear that God has been using it over the past few weeks. Heard some positive uh, responses from some people that haven't quite put their faith in Jesus and also some that have just put their faith in Jesus and some that have been Christians for a long time. It seems like God is doing something through this series and through his word, and we're really thankful for that. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and we're going to jump right in this morning. Father, um, I recognize my need for you. Um, all of us uh, this season is often characterized by hustle and bustle and being stressed out and being in traffic and thinking of everything we have to do and all the parties we have to go to all the people we have yet to buy for, all the presents we need to wrap, all the people that we have to meet, all the people that we're missing that aren't going to be at our Christmas, uh, that aren't with us again this year. And there's all kind of pressure in this season and our soul can get under that pressure and our soul can feel stressed and worn and thin, um, like not enough but butter spread over too much bread. And I pray this morning that you would help us this morning, that you would settle us this morning, that you would Give us a, the gift of your presence and the gift of our own presence that we could be really here and not somewhere on our phone or somewhere online or somewhere else. We could be here and we could listen to your word and your word would speak. I pray that you would think through my mind. I'm not capable of telling the goodness of the gospel without your Holy Spirit and that you would speak through my vocal cords, that you would use me, Father, and keep any foolishness at bay. I pray that you would Help us hear what you'd have to say for us this morning. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Well, 40 days after Jesus was born, his father, Joseph, and his mother, Mary, brought him to the temple to offer the appropriate sacrifice to present Jesus to the Lord as it was prescribed to do in the Old Testament. And as I said the past couple of weeks, when they walked into the temple, they ran into this man named Simeon, 
And Simeon was a righteous and devout man of God who'd been prayerfully anticipating and looking forward to God's promised Messiah. Now that word Messiah, Messiah is God's promised redeemer, the one who's going to fix all of mankind from the fallen sin that happened in Genesis chapter three. They were looking forward to this promised one who would come and make everything right. And when Simeon saw the baby Jesus, the Holy Spirit told him that Jesus was him. Jesus was the Messiah. And so Simeon took Jesus into his arms and said what we read in Luke 2, 33 through 35. He says, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed, that Jesus himself will be opposed And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, speaking to Mary. She was going to experience the grief of a mother who would lose her son. She's going to watch him publicly tortured and crucified. And he says this, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. So that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. Like I've said the past few weeks, Simeon is saying that no one can remain neutral to Jesus. And Luke, Jesus is called the Prince of Peace, but then again, he says himself that I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And of course, he's not contradicting himself there. He's fulfilling the prophecy of Simeon. He's going to be bring peace through kind of a great shaking up. Jesus is going to reveal what's in the heart of man, and that always causes a violent reaction. It crushes some people, and then yet it exalts others. It causes some to fall at his feet and worship him as Lord, and it causes others to walk away angry or walk away sad from him. In this sense, Jesus is and always will be the most polarizing human that's ever existed. And during Advent, we're studying some of these honest encounters with Jesus, and it's our hope that through these examples that you too would experience an honest encounter with the peacemaker, Jesus. And Jesus, of course, is the peacemaker who accomplishes peace in very revolutionary ways because he has the ability to expose the contents of our hearts. And in every one of our hearts, there's conflict going on. If you have any amount of introspection or honesty with yourself, you, you know that. Jesus knows how to get down into our hearts and kind of turn a mirror on them or reveal to us what's really going on, what's causing the conflict internally, what's bringing that angst we feel, what are we missing? I think most of us would say, I feel like I'm constantly missing something. Well, two weeks ago, we looked at Jesus' encounter with a young man who seemed to have everything going for him. He was successful and morally outstanding compared to his peers, and yet he still felt like he was spiritually lacking. He knew he was missing something, and Jesus showed him that he was feeling incomplete. I'm simplifying all this down. You can go back and listen to that sermon. Because he loved money more than he loved God, and money can, of course, never love you back. Money is temporary, And God is eternal. Money leaves as soon as we die or as soon as you mistreat it or misspend it. And it never finds its way back. Never forgives after a 
financial mistake. Yet we are meant, see, we were created to have this loving relationship with God. And so we can only have that with God. You can't have that with money. And this morning, we see Jesus once again stir things up. And he does that by crossing three hard, traditional boundaries that were considered by his cultural culture to be inappropriate at best. Scandalous actually might be the better term. There were lines in the sand. There were boundaries in their society. There were classes in their society and you didn't cross them. But Jesus, as we see this morning, was more concerned with saving the lost than he was with conserving traditional religious or societal values and norms. And this morning, it's a gift to us. And I wish I could spend more time in it. I know I always say that. But we get to see Jesus love an outsider with no regard for his own reputation, no regard for what people are going to, look what camp he's in, look, look, he's ta- look who he's talking to, look who he's associating with. What does that mean about him? Jesus ignores all of that banter and he doesn't seem worried about how others are going to view his own actions. Even his own disciples are kind of blown away by what Jesus does today. But for us to understand how, just how controversial this encounter is, we need to take a closer look at this woman. We see from the text that she is a Samaritan, that she is immoral, and that, of course, she is female. First, she's a Samaritan. The Jewish people considered the Samaritans to be religiously unclean. Most Jews would take the long way when they're traveling, they would take take the long way around Samaria to avoid being defiled for worship. They considered them unclean because they were a racially mixed people group who were partly Jewish and partly Gentile. Basically, the Samaritans were Jews who had intermarried with pagans 100 years before and when the northern kingdom split and the northern kingdom got kind of taken over, they had intermarried and they had adopted, um, you know, they had adopted the pagan rituals and they'd kind of blended their Jewish history with this new pagan history. They were this offshoot from Judaism and they had their own version of the Pentateuch. They had their own temple on Mount Gerizim and their own rendering of Jewish history. They had their own stories. So traditional Jews hated them, and tried to avoid all contact with them. So here we see Jesus is crossing a racial line that would have caused quite a stir among his own people. They would have pointed at him saying, you are racially, you are religiously unclean for associating with these people. Why are you causing such a stir by doing this? Second, Jesus, of course, speaks with a woman. And that, and what is even more astonishing than that, a woman who's by herself, he approaches her and he asks her for something. What's even more astonishing is when we learn that she's not just a woman, but she's a immoral woman who had been married five times and was living with a guy, most commentators believe, who she was not even married to currently. And we learn that 
She was at the well at noon. Well, most women went to the well early in the morning because it's the coolest part of the day. And they would meet there and the ladies would talk and they would have some fellowship and then they would take their water and they would go back home. But she's at the well at noon because she is a moral outcast. She's even, so not only is she not Jewish, she's Samaritan, but, and she's not just a woman who she's kind of, really, I hate to say it like this, but in that culture was a second class citizen to males. But third, she was an outcast even to the women because she was considered immoral. She'd been married so many times and she was living in an immoral lifestyle, living with someone who wasn't even her husband now. And so she had to go, she couldn't go in the early morning when most women went. She'd have to go in the hottest time of the day at noon. And so Jesus here is meeting this immoral Samaritan woman for all to see at noon. And she's this complete outsider. And Jesus yet meets her there and pursues a relationship with her. He speaks to her. Jesus was breaking three traditional barriers that a good Jewish man should never break. He was crossing racial gender, and moral lines in order to reach out to this woman. And that shows us just how passionate Jesus was for reaching out to people outside of his camp that do not yet know him. And we should also notice that this encounter is very different to his encounter with the rich young man Jesus encountered a couple weeks ago. It's interesting to see how Jesus' style of evangelism or his missional engagement or his gospeling kind of adapts to each individual person. He has this desire to have a personal encounter with every single one of us. And it's going to take a, sh a little bit different shape depending on our story, depending on where we come from and our religious background. Of course, the moral upright man approached Jesus, came at Jesus and asked him for eternal life. And Jesus kind of gives him the hard truth first. And then this woman, she's a complete outsider and Jesus doesn't wait for her to come to him. Jesus goes to her. Jesus crosses these lines for her. It's interesting. A lot of things change in this encounter, but then also there's a lot of things that kind of remain very similar. Let's take a look. I'm going to go ahead and read through really quick. Chapter 4, if you're with me. John chapter 4. Open up your Bibles. Grab, there's some in the, in, the, in the pouch thing in the chair. I can never remember what this thing is called. You can find it there. Open it up on your app. We're going to read John chapter 4. Now, when G, the Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... Verse three, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. Again, we see this polarizing nature of Jesus. Some are drawn to him, some are repelled by him. Jesus was a very popular teacher. Verse three, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee and he had to pass through Samaria. Well, technically he didn't have to pass through. It is the shortest route, but most Jews, like I said, took the long way around to avoid being religiously unclean. Jesus throws those rules out of the window and he has to pass through Samaria. Most commentators say he had to pass through Samaria so that he would meet this Samaritan woman. He had a desire to take the gospel outside of this Jewish sect and bring it to the whole world in a sense. And so he goes through Samaria, verse five. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, weird as he was from his journey, 
was sitting beside the well. Jesus gets tired. He's human. It was about the sixth hour. That's noon. And a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. And then there's this whole other side of the story where the disciples, we could focus on the disciples this morning. I'm not going to really do that. If I had another week, I would, but I'm not going to. So the disciples are hungry and they're looking for food and they went to buy food. Jesus is at the well and he needs a drink and he's by himself. Verse nine, and the Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? And then the writer of John gives us context. For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. See, this woman is quite surprised that Jesus is willing to cross these real lines, these real barriers, this racial, gender, and moral lines of the day in order to interact with him. And for us to get our minds around it, this is similar to the, some of the racial lines that we've had in our society, in our, in our country, in times past, where we're African-Americans and whites, that there's this bar- these barriers, sometimes spoken, sometimes unspoken between them. And Jesus is willing to cross these lines. And, and what, that, what that means is he's going to get blasted by his own camp. His own people are going to say, what are you doing? Why are you doing this? Why are you causing such a stir? Why are you causing problems? Why are you filing yourself by being with that type of person? Let's keep reading. Verse 10. So she's like, why? She's surprised, right? Why are you, a Jewish man, speaking to me, a Samaritan woman? Jesus says, If you knew the gift of God, the gift, and who it is that's saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. So Jesus is now saying, if you understood the gift, if you understand God's gift to mankind, if you understand me, Jesus, You would have asked me, and I wouldn't just give you water that'll satisfy you in this moment. I'll give you living water, water that continually will satisfy you for the rest of your life. This is the offer. And of course, she's confused. Verse 11, the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with. You got no bucket, all right? The the well is really deep. You know, she's like, I come here every day. I've never pulled up living water, all right? It's always the same old water. I don't know what what you're getting at here. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? I wish Jesus would have, no, I don't, but Jesus could have been like, yeah, I am actually. He didn't. He, He lets this play out a little bit. Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank, it from, drank from it himself and as did his sons and his livestock. And you can learn all about the story in, in the Old Testament there. And Jesus goes on and tries to explain to her. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water, this water in the well, will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. 
the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And Jesus later on in John goes on to explain that Jesus here is talking about the Holy Spirit, the third member of the Trinity, that when we ask him for this gift, that the Father will give it to us and fill us with God himself that will satisfy our hearts forever and that he'll come into anyone who asks him for this living water. Of course, this is still a little confusing. Right? The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Okay, she's not getting the metaphor. Right? She's like, I hate coming to this well every day. Like, I hate the fact that I'm thirsty all the time. Right? Now, here, I want us to think about this. Isn't it interesting? that Jesus makes this offer so attractive, easy, and free. Attractive, living water, always satisfied. Easy, just ask me for it. Free, it's a gift. Especially when we compare this encounter with Jesus' encounter with the rich young man. Jesus told him, oh, oh, you want eternal life? You'll need to sell everything you own and give it to the poor, and then you'll have it. With this woman, he says, eternal life is a free gift, and all you have to do is ask me for it. Now, is Jesus being unfair, having two different standards? No. Jesus speaks differently to people in power than he does to people without power. He speaks differently to insiders than he does to outsiders. But what we're about to see is Jesus, he doesn't leave anyone's heart unchanged. He he comes in with this beautiful offer and this free gift, but what what we see is he doesn't just leave it there. He still goes after the heart, the Our heart, the contents of our heart still has to be dealt with. If our heart goes unchanged, we do not taste eternal life. We do not taste eternal water. And so Jesus still, he he goes deeper, still goes after the heart. Once again, what if this happened to you? What if you were leading this on and someone goes, I want the living water that satisfies my soul. Can I have it? Now, I bet most of us, if you were raised in church, This is where you go, okay, what were the steps to the Romans road? All right, oh, pray the prayer, pray the prayer. Let's let's just pray the prayer. Stop right now and pray the prayer. You can drink it right now. You can get this water right now. Jesus doesn't do that. He goes deep into her heart. Verse 16. Well, 15, right? Sir, give me this living water. He's got it, right? I want it. Like you do. Verse 16. Jesus said to her, Oh, go call your husband and come here. Now, Jesus is not changing the subject, he's gospeling her heart. He's applying the good news, the offer of eternal life the offer offer of water that never satisfies to her heart, to the wounds, to her story. 
He's trying to take the gospel offer of salvation that he gave her in 1 through 15 and kind of Trojan horse it down into her heart. Get behind her defenses. Get behind her wounds. Get behind her walls. Go get your husband. And verse 17 through 18 are what I call her rich young ruler moment. Verse 17. The woman answered him, I've, I've got no husband. All the true lies that we tell. Right? I've, interesting that you would ask that. I have no husband. Back to that water thing again. Jesus said to her, you were right in saying, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What, what you've said is true. She said, I see that you're a prophet. Like, we need that awkward pause in there. It just has to be there. Right? You're right. You're not married. You've had five husbands, and the guy you're with now is not your husband. I see that you're a prophet. And this is interesting, what she does here. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem where you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Now, what is going on here? This is let's get the spotlight off of my sex life. Let's, I see that you're a prophet. Let's talk theology. See, Jesus comes to expose the thoughts of our hearts. And when that happens, we get really uncomfortable. We're not okay with being that vulnerable with our, the deepness of our soul and the deepness of our wounds and our scars and our sins and the malformations of our soul. We're not used to those being brought out in the open. And if they are, they're usually brought out in the open to expose and to hurt and to wound and to make fun of and to cause a shame. And so when he brings up her sex life, she wants to do what any good religious person will do. And that's, well, what about the Trinity? Huh? right? What about the sovereignty of God, right? Like, let's, let's get it off of me and let's talk theology. And Jesus, of course, does answer her theology. He talks about worshiping in spirit and truth, and he answers it really well. And then how does she answer? I love it. She says, look at, like, just keep reading. 24, or 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called Christ, the anointed one. When he comes, he will tell us all such things. So here's what she did. Jesus says, go get your husband. I don't have a husband. Oh, you've got five. The guy you're living with now. I see that you're a prophet. What's the proper way to worship? He answers her, well, you know what? When Messiah comes, he'll tell us. She kind of throws up her hands and says, well, you know, theology, it's so hard to know, but the Christ will tell us whenever he comes. Just so happens, right? Jesus, yeah, that's me. I'm he. 
her religious walls, her religious, you know, they, they talk about submarines and submarines have these little things that they shoot out the back of them. If a missile is coming to them, they have these bombs that they drop in the water that kind of cause a little explosion that caused the, the torpedoes to blow up. And we all have these kind of defense mechanisms. And we even defend ourselves against the Holy Spirit, that Jesus is going after our hearts and we feel thrown off kilter. And so we have these defense mechanisms that we kind of try to throw off God, try to throw off the Holy Spirit. But as Charles Spurgeon says, that the Holy Spirit is the hound of heaven and he knows how to get his prey. He knows how to get to our heart. And Jesus continues to come after him. Jesus says, I who speak to you am he. Now, it's interesting here. This woman, I'm not going to go into all the disciple stuff. This woman doesn't walk away from Jesus sad. She runs away rejoicing and telling others what Jesus had done for her. We don't really get to see, we don't understand really what did Jesus do for her. But this is how she described it. Look at verse 29. Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ who told me all that I ever did? Look at verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in Jesus because of the woman's testimony. She told them what he did for her. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And Jesus stayed there two days, willing to live with them there for two days. And many more believed because of his word, because of Jesus's word. They said to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves. And we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world, the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one. We don't just, we're not just convinced by your story. We've got our own story to tell now. Now, what's going on? I said earlier, this is kind of her rich young ruler moment. And if I could have it, Jesus here, he, he frames it up by using this powerful metaphor, that of water and our body's natural need for it. No matter how much water you drank last week, you need more today. That we were created with a natural thirst for water and water, something that actually exists, and only water can satisfy that thirst. Now you can say, well, I can drink pop. Well, there's water in pop, not as much. It's not gonna work for you, whatever, right? I get it. Like I'm heavily caffeinated this morning, okay? So, but we have, we need, our bodies naturally need water. Our bodies can also teach us a thing or two about our souls or our, our spirits. Just as God created our bodies to thirst for water, he created our souls to thirst for him and this eternal life that's found with him. And the problem is ever since the, the fall, ever since Adam and Eve sinned, that our souls have been cursed. We've been marred. Our souls have been marred. They've been bent in on themselves. We've been separated from God, our source of living eternal water. 
And because of sin, we naturally try to quench our spiritual thirst, the thirst of our souls, with natural means. The rich young ruler went to money and morality. This woman went to sex and relationships with men. She's been using sex and relationships with men to quench her spiritual thirst her whole life. And of course, five times over, it's never worked. In the relationship she's in now, it's not going to work there either. And so Jesus steps into her story to expose the folly of what she's doing. Now, it's interesting. In the Old Testament, in Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 13, the prophet Jeremiah calls our, us going to other things to, thir- to quench our spiritual thirst. He calls it digging out broken cisterns and rejecting the living water of God. So we go to these things that we dig out these faulty wells that you can put water into them and water gets stagnant, the water can stale, the water leaks out. Broken cisterns that can't really hold water that will satisfy our souls. This creates this never-ending pattern of being thirsty, but then having inadequate means to satisfy my soul's thirst. This leads us to all kinds of addictions, right? We try something once and then we begin to abuse that thing and then we become dependent upon it. And then, of course, we relapse. We try to stop and we relapse. The rich young ruler had been using money like that. He needed more and more and more of it. And Jesus said, you've got to give away your drug. You've got to give away your broken cistern. And he walks away sad, unable to do it. And now this woman, she's been using men and the relationship with men to fill this hole, to to quench this spiritual thirst. And of course, it's not working and she's got a, a trail of destruction behind her and she's, you know she's ashamed of her life. She's an outsider. She's broken. She's lost. She's thirsty. Jesus is revealing this pattern of perpetual soul dehydration and frustration. Now, if you've lived any amount of time on this earth, you should have some awareness of this soul dehydration and the frustration that every marketer in the world, they just prey on it, right? Every marketer in the world, the reason you're thirsty is because you need insert product here, right? Just put this lotion on your face be perpetually surprised, but look a lot younger. That'll, that'll solve what you need, right? This vacation, this house, this car, this outfit, freedom, the road, no, nothing tying you. Jesus comes to expose these inadequate wells that we go to trying to find soul satisfaction. And now listen, he doesn't do it just to embarrass us. He does it to kind of peel back reality and show us that we are all thirsty 
And because of our sinful nature, we all try to quench our soul thirst with inadequate wells that are broken. But Jesus, of course, he doesn't just, he wants to show the inadequacies of all those other wells, but he also wants to say, I am the well of life that has eternal life. Come drink of me and find soul satisfaction. He's the only one with eternal water that can satisfy our souls. Now I'm gonna ask you this morning, do you know your faulty wells? It's not, listen, I don't care if you're 10 years old or you're 100 years old. It's not, do you have faulty wells? It's not, do you go to other places to find soul satisfaction? It's where do you go? We all have them. John Calvin said the human heart is a factory of idols. We just, if we replace one, we create a new one. All right, so where do you go to find soul satisfaction? Here's a question. What do you do with your solitude? You have nothing to do. What do you do? I can kind of show you often where you naturally gravitate to find satisfaction. Where does the majority of your money go? You follow the breadcrumbs of money, and oftentimes you get to your own wealth. You get to the faulty well. Lastly, what, where are your kind of, when, does, when do your emotions kind of get out of control? What makes you feel really angry or really scared or really ashamed? If you kind of trace those back, oftentimes you find a faulty idol. You, you, you looked bad at work and it crushed you. Maybe your idol, maybe your faulty well is your reputation. I want others to look at me and applaud me and speak well of me. What do you really want and expect out of life? What do you think you just have to have in order to be happy, secure, and successful? I have to get married. Any single, singles in this room, you think, that's it. Once I'm, I'm so thirsty because I, I don't have this relationship and I, I'm not married and I look around and everybody's married and everybody's having kids and time's passing me up and I just think if I got married, then I would be satisfied. Every married person in this room laughs and says, no, they don't laugh because we don't mean to demean you, but we say, it ain't there, sister. That ain't the well that's going to satisfy you. What do you think you have to have in order to be happy, secure, successful? Questions like these often reveal to us what's our, what our functional wells are. And the truth of the matter is, faulty wells never fail to fail. They always Dr. David Powlinson says this, the most basic question which God poses to each human heart is this, has something or someone besides Jesus Christ taken the title to your heart's functional trust, preoccupation, loyalty, service, fear, and delight? Something in your heart more important to you than Jesus Christ, if it is, it will naturally be a faulty well, that will never fail to fail. But here, I'm, get, I'm doing good this morning as I'm getting ready to close. After you kind of identify, if you can answer some of those questions and you can maybe see in your life and the spirit maybe helps you see what is my functional savior here? What, what is this well that I go to to quench my spiritual thirst? How do you actually make the change from going to this thing to find my, to quench my thirst, 
to going to Jesus Christ, the true and better well? How do I make this switch? Well, when we read here that she says, come see this Jesus that he told me everything about my life. What she is saying is that Jesus reinterpreted, reinterpreted her story and kind of completed it for her, that he quenched her spiritual thirst. That's why we see in verse 28 that she left her water jar at that well and she went away into town rejoicing and telling others about Jesus, that Jesus actually quenched her spiritual thirst. But how did he do that? Well, it's interesting that he didn't do what he did with the, the religious man and give him another standard that he just couldn't meet to bring him to his own folly so he could see the brokenness in his own self. Why? Why, why did he not reveal her own brokenness? Well, he kind of already did, right? And she already feels it. She's been married five times. She's with another guy. She, she, she has the sense of shame. She's already one step towards the kingdom. She's broken. She realizes she can't get this. She can't earn this on her own. And so he offers her this life, but he does show her it's going to cost you something. You can't continue to go to this well. You can't continue to drink from this well and hope to find satisfaction in the arms of another lover. It's never going to happen. Turn from that and turn, for, turn to me and let me satisfy you. Now, it's interesting. One thing we know about Jesus is as Jesus finishes his ministry, he lives the, we, we've set it up here several times today, he lives the perfect life. And what that means is he's lived kind of a vicarious life. He's lived our life that we should have lived. But Jesus doesn't just live a perfect life. He dies the death that we all deserve. He experiences the pain that we feel. And it's so interesting to me that this woman, you know, she's thirsty. She's longing to be satisfied. And one of the seven things, the last things that Jesus said on the cross as he's dying for our sins is, I thirst. Tim Keller says it like this, to put it in terms of this particular account, when Jesus Christ was on the cross, he cried out, I thirst. Why? It wasn't just physical deprivation. He was experiencing utter spiritual deprivation. He was being cast away from his father's face. He was losing the source of all joy and love in the universe. He was experiencing hell. He was burning up spiritually. He was dying of thirst. And why did he go through it? It was so he could say to this woman or to anybody else that's here, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care whether you've had five, five husbands. I don't care if you've been a hitman for the mob. I don't care who you are or what you've done. This water of life is for you by grace freely because I experience the ultimate thirst you deserve so you can have the water of life, the living water. And that's why she says, come see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. What a strange way to testify. No, what she's saying is he saw me at my worst and he still offered me the living water. I've never met a man like this. 
He's a man who doesn't care about race or gender or morality or any of the world's value. He loves me. He cares about me. He offered this to me. He's seen me at the bottom at my worst, yet he's loved me to the skies. As I was meditating on this this week, I was reading a poem. It's called The Temple by George Herbert, a couple hundred years old. And this section here, he's writing from the perspective of Jesus. And this page just kind of arrested my attention this week. That's what it says. I think we've got it here. You know you can trust a guy that looks like that. (laughs) Maybe not. Oh, all you who pass by. So this is Jesus on the cross. This is kind of written from his perspective. Oh, all you who pass by, behold and see, see him on the cross. Humankind stole the fruit, speaking of Adam and Eve, but I must climb the tree, speaking of the cross. The tree of life belongs to all, but only me, the tree of death, was ever grief like mine. Here I hang, charged with the world of sin, the greater world of the two, the spiritual world, the true world, for that came in by words, but the sorrow I must win was ever grief like mine. Such sorrow as if sinful man could feel or feel his part, he would not cease to kneel until all were melted, though he were all steel. He's saying is if we realize that Christ is on the cross because of our sin, our part, though our, we may have spines like steel, we may have hearts like steel, we may have minds like steel. If we can see Christ on the cross and our part in that and his love for us, it will melt us. But oh my God, my God, why dost thou leave me? Jesus said. The son in whom thou delightest so, my God, my God, never was grief like mine. Shame tears my soul, my body many a wound. Sharp nails pierce this, but sharper that confound. Reproaches which are free while I am bound was ever grief like mine. And this is what his mocker said to him. Now heal thyself, physician. Now come down. Alas, I did come down when I left my crown. And Father, smile for you. Feel his frown. Christ felt the frown of God in order that we could feel his smile. Was ever a grief like mine. In healing not myself, there consists all that salvation which you now resist. Your safety in my sickness subsists. Was ever a grief like mine. Between two thieves, I draw my last breath as he that for some robbery suffers, saying, did I steal anything from you as I hang on this cross? Alas, what have I stolen from you? Death. Herbert goes on and on. I could read the whole poem. What he's getting at is this. When you look to the cross, what is your response to Jesus? Look at what he's done for you. Now listen, you can't just shrug it off. 
and go about your day and sit there and make your shopping list and think about the party you got to go to tonight and where you're going to get the ugly sweater. You can't do that. To have a calm, cool response to Jesus is an immoral response. Think about that. I don't think I've ever thought about that until this morning as I was praying about it. To look at the Son of God dying for me, thirsting for me to quench my very thirst, and God says, this is the only way you'll ever be satisfied is at the cross where your sinfulness and the righteousness of God and kiss, that's where you'll be satisfied. To me, to look at what he did for me, shrug my shoulders and go, eh, no big deal. That would be an immoral response. That would be sin itself. If I ever get to heaven and I stand before God when I die and I would say, well, you know what? There wasn't enough evidence. I would be convicted by my immoral response to the cross of Jesus Christ. If a person gives their life to saviors, you can't just shrug it off and treat it coolly. Much less the son of the living God. What's the proper response? I think there's only one proper response, and this woman at the well shows us what it is. She runs, she receives the living water. Jesus loved me at my worst. I'm broken and yet accepted. I'm forgiven and given new life. I am my soul's thirst has been satisfied. I don't need faulty wells anymore. I'm only going to him from this day on. Come! See this man who told me everything I ever did. I know I felt like that when people have applied the gospel to my own heart in missional community setting, wherever it is, when I'm reading something, oh, this guy knows me and this guy loves me. The only proper moral response to Jesus Christ is to thank him, to accept his gift, to worship him, and to run out and tell others about him. I'm so excited that she goes out and she says, you got to come see this guy. And she brings people back to Jesus. And then Jesus does the convincing. You know, her story got them back to Jesus, but then Jesus convinced them of himself, right? And that's all our stories are meant to do. Get people to encounter Jesus and let Jesus do what Jesus does. And that's get into our hearts and reveal what's there. And so this morning, what is your response to Jesus? Is it worshipful? trust, worshipful rest? Is it missional engagement, excited to go tell others about Christ? Or is it something other? This moment, if you're a believer, as we come to the Lord's table, is a moment of repentance. Turn from your lukewarm responses at his sacrifice for you to worship him because he loves you even when you're lukewarm. And for those of you in this room who have maybe a hard heart towards Christianity, a hard heart towards Christ, you have that steel heart, would you look at his face on the cross who's there for you and would you let it melt your heart of stone? No one's ever loved you like this. No one's ever known you like this. Jesus, Son of God. If you're not a believer this morning, don't come and take the elements, take Christ by faith. Father God, there's so many ways that your word this morning can pierce our heart. Jesus, I thank you 
for not only crossing racial lines, not only crossing gender lines, not even crossing moral lines, but you crossed the line of heaven and earth and you came and you pursued us. When we weren't looking for you, when we weren't searching for you, you came and searched for us and you did what no one else can do. Perfectly pleased the Father by living a perfect life and you perfectly appeased his wrath towards sin by dying the death that we deserve so that we could have eternal life, this well, the Holy Spirit that wells up inside of us. And so this morning, we put our faith in you again. We go back to the well and we want to drink deeply. That we're worse than we ever thought possible, but simultaneously we're more loved than we can ever imagine. Would you take this truth from our heads down into our hearts, to the depths of our being, to the core of our soul. And as believers come this morning and they accept the elements that represent your body that was broken for us and your blood that was shed for us, that you're spiritually here, present with us in this meal, and that you're communicating to us your real presence, your spiritual, your, your spirit is here feeding us, quenching our thirst. We thank you for it. Your worship. Your name be glorified. Amen.